So three weeks ago, we left Jesus at the shoreline on the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And rather than showing you that storm, I should have showed you a map of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and they had, uh, they had just gotten there and seen 2,000 hogs commit suicide. And what I'd like to try to do with you today is put you in the mind of being one of these young men that walked and followed to the best of their ability the Lord Jesus Christ and understand a little bit more, as Tom shared with us three weeks ago, of what discipleship looks like. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. Not only had Jesus just cast many demons out of one fellow, there were actually two fellows according to one of the other men, but this one was scarier than the most, and he got, he got all the credits on this particular movie, uh, Luke's telling, and uh, he was terrifying. And when Jesus went to cast out the demon, uh, the demon said, we are legion for we are many. And uh, we don't know, a Roman legion is anywhere from one to five or 6,000 people, uh, soldiers. And we, we don't really know whether this guy was just buffing or if there were six or 12 or 600 or 5,000. but. The, the 2,000 hogs did jump into the sea. Now, some people use that as an estimate. Well, there were 2,000 demons. I don't know that hogs are that smart. I think if you could get four hogs to jump into the sea, they'd all follow thinking they were going for something to eat. So I, I really don't know how many demons were cast out. But the townspeople were not happy about the hogs. It's interesting. Here's a man that had terrified them for centuries, or not centuries, for many years, and they were afraid to go for a walk by themselves because of these two crazy people running around in their community of Gadara. And yet, when he's sitting there sane and in his right mind, they're only concerned about hog futures. They're worried about their investment. They're not worried. So they asked Jesus to leave. So this newly healed and saved man asked Jesus if he could follow him. Uh, i got to find my mouse, and it's somewhere in California right now. Sorry. What did I do? Turn it back off? It says it's on. There we go. It's here somewhere. It's not on the screen behind me. Oh, it is on the screen behind me. Good. I need a little mirror here like the bicyclist where to see where my mouse is. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Anyway, the man wanted to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I go with you? Well, you know, you could understand why he would want to. First of all, he's probably not well liked in the town where he, he is. And he probably is pretty embarrassed about his past behavior, as all of us were the moment we were saved. And there's probably a lot of things in his past that he'd like to forget. So following Jesus would be the most comfortable and easiest course of action. But Jesus said no. He said, return unto your own house and show how great things God hath done Unto thee. Now that's an interesting phrase. You'll hear people say Jesus never claimed to be God. But wait, wait, what did he say there? God has done this to you. Uh, so the point is simple here as we get started. You know, Jesus could have saved me in 1972 as he did and snatched me right away and taken me to heaven. Why did he leave me here? Well, it's for the same reason. The same reason he left you here. So you would show all the great things that God has done for you. He's left you here as a witness. A disciple is a learner. A witness bears testimony of what they've learned. So when Jesus crossed back over the, the lake, this time going from southeast to northwest to Capernaum, He was met with such a large crowd that Luke says they pressed upon Him. 
And here a woman touches him and is healed of a disease that she'd had for 12 years while Jesus is on the way to heal a little girl who's died who is also 12 years old. That's interesting. My granddaughter is 12 for the moment, right? A few more days, she'll be 13. Chuck Messner is always trying to make a connection between these two 12s. I don't know if there is any, if it's a coincidence, but you know the Jews say there's no such thing as a coincidence with God. So there may be something there that I'm not smart enough to see. But on their way for Jesus to heal this girl, and I'm still in Luke chapter 8, word came that she was dead. Don't bother the master, for she'd already died. But when Jesus heard it, he answered and said, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the little girl. Why did he do that? Well, the next verse tells you. And all wept and bewailed and said, Weep not. He said, Weep not, for she is not dead, but she sleepeth. It's hard for Jesus to do a miracle when everybody around is weeping and wailing and saying how bad things are and not believing that any miracle of God is possible. So where there is doubt, it's harder to do a miracle. That's going to hit us later on in this chapter. Where there is doubt, it's harder to do a miracle. And they not only doubted, they laughed him to scorn, Luke tells us, knowing that she was dead. They'd seen dead people. They knew what dead people looked like. So Jesus asked everyone to leave. Peter, James, and John stay behind. We call that the inner circle. And of course, he invited her parents in. And he says to her, little girl, actually, arise. What we would say, he said, maiden, arise. What we would say, little girl, sit up. And her spirit came again and she rose straightway and he commanded to give her meat. Another curious fact about almost everyone that you read about that's resurrected, they always, Jesus always wants you to give them something to eat. Don't know why that is, but he always commands it. He doesn't say, could we get her something to eat? He says, give her something to eat. You know. I don't know what, what that tells us. So I want you to put yourself... In Peter, James, and John's case now, when did they sleep last? To the best of our knowledge, the night before last. They worked all day. That was the parable of the sower. They were in a terrible storm that night. They'd seen this guy healed early in the morning. They sailed back across. They pressed through this mob. And now they've seen this little girl raised. Day one parable of the sower. That night, storm with Jesus on board. Next morning, a raving lunatic attacks them and is healed. They, and then they re, the town kicks them out. They're driven out of the... Now, of course, Gennesaret is a Gentile town, so they, they just ask these Jews, get out of our town. And Jesus left. That's what we did, didn't it? Didn't we ask Jesus to leave our country? And we ask him to move out, get out of our schools, get out of our government institutions. You've got no right to be here. You ever think what that town lost when Jesus got back on that boat and sailed to the other side? And you ever think of what we've lost when Jesus 
backed off. You know, when we back away from God, He backs away from us. What have we given up? Day two, crossing back across the sea, just heading back home. They're met with a vast crowd of people. An unknown woman is healed of a disease of 12 years, and he's asked to raise this little girl from the dead. You know, when I was first called to preach, I didn't want to preach. There are days I still don't. Uh, but the only thing that made me think it might be okay is I looked at my pastor in Maryland, Ralph Michaels was, was I, I assume he's passed away. I don't even know that. I assume he's passed away now. He's with the Lord. But I looked at his life and I thought, well, he's got it pretty easy. You know, it seems like all he does is garden and uh, come up with a sermon once a week. I thought, you know, even though I really didn't want to stand up in front of people and, and, and preach, I thought, you know, the boy's got it pretty good. You know, and I don't know why I was reading my Bible back then, and I don't know why I, I couldn't read these two chapters and think that that isn't much time in there for gardening. I don't know if you've noticed that. Not much time for raising sheep or doing whatever it is you like to do. In my case, sailing. They got a little sailing in, but not the kind I like to do. They're just going from one problem to the next. Do you ever feel like that? Welcome to the club. One problem right after another. So they would get to chapter 9, which is where I'm supposed to be today, and they called us 12 disciples together and gave them power. That word is uh, dunamis. We get our word dynamite from the Greek word dunamis, and it's talking about the inherent power, the strength, the, uh, the ability, if you will. So if he, gave, if he gave me the power to lift 300 pounds, I'd have the strength to lift 300 pounds. He gave them power and authority. Authority is the executive privilege of working under God that God gave me the authority to do these things. So I not only have the strength, but I have the authority under God to do these things. Now, it's, it's interesting when you look at the charge. Um, but he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. It, it, I, as I was reading this, I thought it was kind of odd. He didn't give them the power to preach. Uh, I'm sure it was in there somewhere, but I just thought maybe under the word authority, but I just thought it would be nice if he said, you know, I'm going to give you the, the ability to preach too. Uh, but he wants you to come up into this pulpit and he wants you to know that you have no ability. You find that out when you get here. And you know that if he doesn't help you, you're really going to be an embarrassment and you're dependent on him. So maybe that's why it's not listed. I don't know. But he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said, take nothing for your journey. Now he sends them out in the next chapter and he's going to tell them entirely different directions. But this first missionary trip, he sends them out and he says, take nothing for your journey, neither staves, uh, walking sticks or script, that's money, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever how she enter therein abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of the city, when you go out of the city, shake off the very dust of your feet for a testimony against them. It's a very common Jewish practice. So it wasn't anything unusual for them to hear that. And they departed two by two and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now that's really all Luke shares with us, but Matthew was on this missionary tour, this little week-long trip. 
So he adds some details that I hope you don't mind me jumping over to the book of Matthew and reading for you. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, nor to any city of the Samaritans enter you not, but go ye rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where they were sent. He doesn't want them getting into too much trouble. Right? And as you go preach, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Now look at this list. Now, you know, he says, Bob, I want you to go across the street and talk to your neighbor. And I, I say, Lord, would you please just give me the words? And he promises to give us the words. But look what he wants them to do. Now they've been watching him do this. So he's saying to you, go up there to Bristol. Find a home where they'll receive you. Spend a week there. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the devils, freely ye have received, freely give. That must have been some trip. Really. That must have they, they must have really had quite a time. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. The workman is worthy of his meat. If you're going to be there in that town and you're going to be sharing this truth with them, they can at least feed you. And into whatsoever city or town you shall enter, inquire who is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. I think, uh, and when you come into a house, salute it. Now, I don't think he means salute as you would an officer. I think he means greet them in a customary greeting and see how they respond to you. So as per the customs, in our case, we would walk up and say, hello, my name is Bob. And you would shake their hands and say, I represent the king of the universe. Probably been wise to say that. But uh, I would like to share a few things from the Bible with you. And if they receive you, well. And if not, not good, see. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return unto you. The, the newer church planters coming into our community, oh, easily 25, 30 years ago, would always say when they go into a town, they're looking for a man of peace, a man of peace. And I'd hear them talking about this all the time. I'd be in these meetings. I'd always say, well, we're, he's the man of peace in that community. And finally, I, you know, I just had to hide my embarrassment that I had no idea what they were talking about. And they, they referred me to this passage, see. And they said, someone who is open to the gospel, a man of peace. A man that will offer, when you say peace to you, he'll offer peace back. And he'll receive you. you know. Honestly, never heard of that when I was in seminary. And whosoever shall not receive you and hear your words, when you depart out of that house, let's stop there just for a minute. We're not required to force the gospel on anyone. All we're asked to do is present the opportunity. After that, it's up to them. You look for an open heart. You look for an open door. If the door is closed, don't try to kick your way in. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when ye depart out of that house or city, shake the dust off of your feet. And of course, the downside of that, think of Gadara, who didn't want them around, who could have had the, the Son of God preaching in their city for weeks at a time, or at least as long as he was willing to stay, but instead decided to side with the hogs. What a terrible choice they made. 
Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. What's he going to say about us? Frightening thought. Us as a nation, I mean, not us as the church. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Be aware, there are people that are out there to hurt you. Use wisdom. If they don't want to hear it, don't force it on them. The first home, I hope I'm telling you correctly, that we ever bought was in Hillsborough, Maryland. And when God called us, in, Linda and I, into the ministry, and we you know, got past the whole issue of surrendering and, and arguing and how are we going to afford it, and both of us were teachers, quitting our jobs and selling our equipment and closing down my wood shop and all of that. Uh, a buyer came along and bought our house, praise God. But we had a closing date and we got a moving van and we bought a house in, in Chattanooga where we were going to seminary at, at uh, Tennessee Temple. And we had a schedule and we scheduled the closing down there. It was a, not really a nice house, but it was we paid cash for it. So you get an idea what it looked like. Um, but... Uh, Friday came and there was no closing and they told us, well, we're going to close next Friday. Okay, so we called the U-Haul company, we called the closing company, we called everybody and said, let's put it off a week and that week passes and they let us know and they say, oh, it's going to be next Friday. Well, by the time that happened twice, I was nearly beside myself uh, and probably not much fun for Linda to be around, but uh, on the third week, we said, we got to get out of here because I'm going crazy. Let's go back and visit all our old friends. So we did that. Brand new Christian now, I've been saved maybe a year, and we had some crazy tape. I don't even know who it was, but it was about the end of the world, the second coming of Jesus, and the tribulation period. And You don't remember the name of that by any chance, do you, Linda? No, me either. I, I don't even know if I could come close to it. But we had this tape, and a tape player, and a testimony, and we called our old college buddies, and we went up and we stayed with uh, uh, Robert Sufert, who we called Suf, and his wife, whose name I can't remember, one night, and we played the tape and shared the gospel with them. And they looked at us like we had leprosy. Um, well, dude, you have lost your mind. So we thought, well, this is not going too well. So then we went over to my, my roommate in college was Doug Plotz. Uh, Doug married a girl named Charlene, and Doug and Charlene... Uh, received us very glad to see us there they were both in our wedding and we were i wasn't in his wedding but i was at his wedding but um, the reason i wasn't in it is he has so many brothers they took up all the space uh, i think there were seven plots i really don't remember six or seven uh, i remember mama plots had a handful feeding those boys uh, but uh, they received us well and listened to the tape and listened to the gospel and looked at us like whoa, you have gone off the deep end. You know, you have thought I was a Jehovah's Witness or trying to sell them some product that uh, they could become marketers of with me. We went after that to Linda's uh, roommate, Sally and Steve Perry, and they received us very very graciously and heard what we had to say and took us a little more seriously. And, and in the end, they both ended up going to church quite a bit after that. I, I don't want to tell you that Sally was saved, because there's some question about whether she was saved beforehand, but certainly the Holy Spirit did light a spark in her heart. So statistically, we were one for five. Uh, and we went home, and we didn't feel defeated because we'd done what we believed God wanted us to do, even though it didn't work out like we wanted it to work out, if you know what I mean. 
Later on, I, I sent a letter to my mother explaining her need for salvation. I couldn't face her. It was just too stressful. And I'd write her a letter about it, and, and a month would pass, and I wouldn't hear from her. And I'd write her another letter, and a month would pass, and I wouldn't hear from her. And then finally she called me one time. She said, Bob, what's wrong? And I said, what do you mean? She says, you keep sending me all these terrible letters. Well, Mom, I just wanted you to be saved. And she said, well, Bob, I've done everything you asked me to do in the first letter. Uh, what more can I do? And I said, you've done it. Just tell me to stop writing letters. <laughs> I was making her feel guilty that it wasn't working. You know, God said you're not saved. Keep praying. You know, No, no, Mom. If you, if you confess your sin to Jesus Christ, you've raised a Catholic, and you've asked him to come into your life and save you, you're saved. Uh, it's between you and him, and it's a faith thing. Later on, I wrote to my best friend, Eddie, who called me back the day he received the letter, and he said, what are you writing me this letter for? And I said, I got saved, and God, you know, I was embarrassed. God came into my life, and I wanted you to know. He said, that's not what I'm asking you. He said, what are you writing me a letter for? He said, why don't you just come to my house and tell me? And I well, because I'm a chicken, Ed, <laughs> you know. But he actually prayed to receive the Lord the day he received that first letter. And I thought, you know, I must be better at letter writing than I am at speaking, you know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, well, we were up to, what were we at? Six, seven, eight. We were up at three for eight, so our, our statistics were improved. So when you get to the next verse, I, I say all that to tell you, it's not just about working in your garden. Following Jesus is tough. I mean, you go back to those old friends, your drinking buddies, your motorcycle buddies, you share the gospel with them. It's a charge, man, to have to do that. These boys were going back to people that knew them, knew their lives in the past, and sharing with them. And one of them, of course, was Matthew, and he was a tax collector, and they all knew it. You can imagine what it was like for him. You also have the other problem is that there are people that don't want to hear the gospel. I don't know if you've ever run into any of them, but there are plenty around Vermont if you start sharing the gospel. I guarantee you, you'll find someone really quick that does not want to hear it. Now, Herod was one of those guys. Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him. News was getting out. And he was perplexed because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. Now, he had just murdered John for no reason. And some that Elias had appeared, which also tells you, for the, if you were a Jewish, that the Messiah was close. Actually, it's closer than they thought. And had appeared, and others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this? And whom will I hear such things? And he desired to see him. Sometimes when you're sitting with a family that you that's known you and you're attempting to share with the gospel with them, they're not hearing the good news. They're hearing that their sins have come back to haunt them and they are in deep trouble with God. So when you share the gospel, conviction happens. The question is, is how do the people respond to conviction? Will they confess it? Will they agree that they are sinners? Will they confess their sins? Yes, I have done wrong. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I deserve punishment. Or will they return again and strike you and say, shut up, I don't want to hear that stuff. 
Herod desired to see Jesus. It turns out that Herod doesn't get to see Jesus until the final moments of Jesus' trial where Herod's soldiers dress him up and make a mockery of him and send him back to Pilate. He never gets that chance. If he'd have been smart, but he wasn't smart. If he'd have been smart, he would have sent word for someone to go have Jesus come talk to him or at least have one of these disciples speak to him. But he wasn't smart. So to everyone you share the gospel with, the good news doesn't always seem good. Sometimes it sounds like really bad news. I'll never forget the time I shared with my, my sister. We were all excited about the second coming back in the 70s. I guess we missed it. I don't know. It seems like here we are in 2020s and it ain't happened yet. And I'm thinking, you know, Lord. But we're closer now than we were in 1970. So I share about the second coming and about the rapture. And my sister burst into tears. I thought, what is wrong with people? You know, what, what is the matter now, Nancy? I won't get to see my children grow up. Well, I didn't know how to answer that. Of course, I guess the answer now is yes, you will. Not only will you be younger, but they'll be older. But I don't know that. So you really can't say that. But you'll never be apart from your children. They'll be with you forever with God. You needn't fear. And your son won't grow up and overdose on drugs. And he won't die and you won't have that pain to face. But it doesn't matter because the rapture didn't happen in 1972 like I thought it would, so we had to go through all of that, didn't we? But not everyone hears the gospel, and you have to be sensitive to that. Not everyone hears the gospel and hears the good news. You know, I, re I read Hal Lindsey, and he said God killed his son for me so that, that my sins could be placed on him, and it made it possible that God could look at me and freely forgive my sins and accept me wash me of my sins, save me, and He'd make it possible that I could go to heaven. And that sounded like good news to me, but it's amazing how many people it's not good news for. Because they won't confess the fact that they've, they've wronged, they've been wrong, that they've sinned, and they don't want to receive any blessing from God. They want to do it themselves. So when I share with my Uncle Paul and he says to me, Oh, Bobby, I don't need Jesus. I've lived a good life. What more can you say? Except Romans 3, there is none good, no, not one. Well, let's get back to the story. The apostles, when they'd returned from that trip, we're not told how long they were gone, told him all that they had done, and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Now, you know, it's been a tough week. No garden had done that week. And, and they were tired. I doubt seriously if they've had a good night's sleep in seven days. Perhaps more. You know what it's like when you visit someone you don't know. And you sleep in their guest bedroom. Except there weren't a lot of guest bedrooms in those days. You may have slept with the owner and his wife in the same room on the floor. I don't know. It could be pretty awkward doing what Jesus asked them to do. They were exhausted. So Jesus says, let's... Let's give him a little short break, but it wasn't to be that way because all the people that knew of him followed him wherever he went, even out into the wilderness where they were trying to camp and get some peace and quiet. And they, you know, he could have said, you know, we're trying to take a break here. 
uh, how about you guys just go back home and we'll give you a call later. You know, we're going to have a church service a week from now after we get back from this little sabbatical. But he didn't say that. Verse 11 says that when they knew it, they followed him and he received them. Talk about the graciousness of God. It wasn't a good time for him. Oftentimes it won't be a good time for us, will it? People will come to us and need our help when we don't really want to have to help them. We're tired. We've had a tough week and we're not willing to take time or we're not wanting to take time. But nonetheless, there's Jesus, just as tired as all the disciples, says, nevertheless, he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. He healed them that had need of healing. Talk about the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When people come at an inopportune time, there he is willing to willing to take our needs. So when I, when I went to him that night and I bowed my head and I said, Lord, if this is true, this, this, this thing is true that you, that you went to that cross for me, even though I knew I was a sinner, I didn't have any argument with that. I didn't pull the old Uncle Paul, I've lived a good life, and I didn't think like my sister, well, what am I going to miss? And, and I didn't look at Hal Lindsey like he was crazy, like my friends looked at me. I thought, well, if this is true, if this is true, let it be true for me. Now, he could have said to me, well, call me in the morning, it's late, Bob. But he didn't. He didn't do that for you either. Excited or exhausted, he receives us as we are. Now, I don't know how much they shared with him about their trip, but in the next chapter, he sends out 70 on another mission trip. And this is how they came back. And I'm assuming it's an assumption that they can, the first 12 came back as excited as the 70. So recognize I pulled this out of context. I'm putting the 70 mission trip in the context of the 12 mission trip. So I'm plucking this out and putting it in just to try to give you a feeling what it must have been like to return. And it said the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. I've never done that. I've, I've prayed for demons to come out of people, but never confronted a demon publicly. I always did that in secret. I didn't want anyone to know. You know, and I prayed for God to deliver people from the power of evil, but I've never confronted a demon directly. I don't know what I'd do if I ran into a demon directly. And I probably shouldn't say that. But these guys were excited. See? But I love Jesus' response. He said, He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven, as he saw his people going out in the power of the Holy Spirit and sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with people who don't necessarily want to hear it and people getting saved, Jesus could see that the kingdom of God was growing and the kingdom of Satan was diminishing. It's a wonderful thing to be used of the Lord. And if, if you've never experienced it, find some way that you can get into a position where you can commit yourselves to do something that the Lord has led you to do. Make sure He's led you to do it now because if He doesn't lead you, He won't empower you. And if He doesn't empower you, it's going to be a miserable experience. So you really want to be sure He's leading you in that direction. But we're all called into a mission field. Every one of us. 
And it's a great privilege to share the gospel with others. So when you feel led of God, step out, take a chance and try it. And you'll find it's an incredible experience. It's a wonderful thing and a great privilege to share the truth that God died in our place. But still, capital but, all that is secondary to the day you met the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no amount of work, there is no amount of joy, there is no amount of toil that will replace the fact that you met Jesus that day and your sins are forgiven. And that's what Jesus is saying. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written down in heaven. Made me think of Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When that day comes and we stand before Jesus, all that's going to matter is what have you done with Jesus Christ. Not how many Sunday school lessons have you taught or how many sermons have you preached or how many people have you witnessed to. All that's going to matter is what have you done with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you made Him the Lord of your life? Has He come into your heart and saved you of your sins? And are you following Him? That is all that will really matter. Let's pray. Father, it's my hope, it's my goal that everyone within the sound of my voice has bowed their heart and their head, confessed their sins to you privately, and received your Son Jesus. Like I prayed those many years ago, Lord, I see, I understand, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin and come into my life and save me. And I know, Father, based on the Word of God that says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I know, Father, that if they will in sincerity confess their sins and call on Jesus, they will be saved. And I pray that for everyone within the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.